Patty, great episode today. You know, chargebacks, uh, you know, you could think it's a boring topic, but boy, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a topic that impacts our merchants so big. And a lot of people in our industry really don't know what to do about it. Yeah, and it's not just our merch. It's not just the merchants, but the ISOs and the agents yes. get impacted. I mean, Absolutely. if you're if your merchant's running up a lot of chargebacks, there's even the possibility he can he or she can lose their ability to accept credit cards. Then you're losing a customer outright. Absolutely. And having a solution that can help them, as Colin explains, you know, does more than just address. Uh, the physical or, you know, the, the momentary chargeback, it's the whole culture that leads right. to chargebacks. So, Absolutely. And then, and then tell us about the insiders report. Uh, we, uh, you know, this EMV thing just keeps on keep it's, it's the news that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, we're talking about, you know, some, um, some, some really interesting statistics on uh, EMV compliance at gas stations. And then your uh, questions in the field was really hot this week. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So we talked about, you know, creating a narrative. How do you create urgency? And I talk about storytelling. So if you're having trouble, you know, you're getting people that are interested, but you're just not getting them over the finish line, especially larger merchants. I talk about creating a narrative of urgency and how to really implement that in the sales process. So I think we've got a lot of great content to share with you today. Patty, I'm ready to jump in if you are. Let's do it. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, James and I are here today with uh, Colin Eddy of Chargeback Gurus. Colin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Patty. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, James, as well. Yeah, uh, good to have you. It's awesome. This is one of those like really thorny topics, so we always love somebody who can come and talk about it with us. Um, but before we get started, Colin, I'd love to get your backstory. You know, what brought you to merchant services, uh, you know, merchant processing, merchant services in general, and Chargeback Gurus in particular? Yeah, uh, so, you know, I was uh, starting out actually at a small company that ran logistics, actually uh, did check clearing for a lot of major banks, and uh -huh. uh, that was in the early 2000s. There was a pivot to image capture, so check clearing was a thing of the past, and right. that uh, business really fell on its face very quickly, kind of overnight, and we were yeah. left with a decision on how to pivot and really make a uh, profit and grow the business and keep a lot of the great people that we had really, um, you know, built relationships with that were our employees, you know, employed with the company. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in order to do that, we took our existing kind of lines of operation and started to open up some payments there and, uh -huh. uh, you know, going direct to consumer. So that was my first foray into payments is, is really setting that company up with its own merchant account and own the, you know, credit card uh, processing abilities. Uh -huh. uh, and then I went on from there just to uh, B2B SaaS telecom solutions and where I met um, a great gentleman, Marty Williams, the VP of business development for chargeback gurus. Right. And, uh, at those companies, I had done partner alliance and, and channel management with a lot of ISVs, uh, VARs, MSPs. And so Chargeback Gurus really had a focus towards uh, providing, a, you know, excellent service and an excellent partner program. Mm -hmm. And that was a resource they were investing in. So they brought me on back in January of 2020 to spin up the partner program and really take off with uh, engaging ISOs, engaging the partner channel and creating a program that really, uh, you know, 
made it made a difference. And and that's what really brought me to Chargeback Gurus is is primarily because I believed in the product. I believed in the solution, mm -hmm. uh, recognizing that, you know, we were here doing work that was really benefiting the end merchant because I had been that small business owner, small sure. business manager before. And I know how difficult it is to really have your life and all the all the people that work for you have their lives in your hand. Mm -hmm. So when you're impacted by something uh, that really impacts the business and the bottom line and your ability to grow, uh, that that's a, a real crippling effect that it can have. And so Chargeback right. is obviously addressing that. Um, you know, it just seemed like a fantastic opportunity. And since I've been with the company, it really has been an eye opener. Just the focus that the co-founders have uh, Shri and Suresh on giving back to their community, providing services and things to uh, the people that work here at Chargeback Gurus. So all of that really made a difference and, and really helped me make a, a very clear decision to come and join Chargeback Gurus. That's awesome. So, you know, today uh, we're talking about chargebacks, obviously. Um, I think our audience as a general rule is is pretty familiar with what they are. But for those that maybe are not, could you start out by just kind of zooming out a little bit for us, Colin, and tell us what is a chargeback? And then maybe dig a little deeper into, you know, are there certain business types that are more likely to get chargebacks, certain types of transactions? So if you can kind of just zoom out and give our audience a, a quick view of what are chargebacks and how they work. Um, and then I know Patty has some additional kind of more detailed questions. Yeah, so chargebacks are, uh, I think, everyone's uh, least favorite topic to really uh, face and discuss. But quite simply, it's a transaction reversal that is initiated by the consumer or credit card holder with their credit card issuing bank. Uh, really, the result is what's the big concern of that chargeback or, or transaction dispute. The result is that immediately that transaction is reversed and that money is given immediately back to the cardholder while the merchant is left, you know, with uh, the decision on is this something that they want or think that they can dispute and submit compelling evidence that's going to be overwhelming uh, about the transaction, the validity, the authenticity, the delivery of services and solutions. Sure and submitting that back to the bank that actually issued the card to the consumer for mm -hmm. them to decide. So right. there's definitely a, a little bit of a weight against the merchants here, but that's what a chargeback is. And, and when we are looking at merchants and looking at industries, really what we're looking at is the vulnerabilities that a merchant has. What touch points does their business have? kind of business model do they have? Are they pr uh, primarily online? Are they primarily card present, card not present? Um, you know, what are their delivery controls? What is their fulfillment? All of those factors really start to build a profile of vulnerability. And so merchants that have various levels of vulnerability really need to start to address those vulnerabilities through, you know, uh, data, solutions, whatever it may be. Um, so that's how we look at it. We don't necessarily look at it as just one industry, one model. We look at it very much as what is your business model and how many vulnerabilities have you introduced into that business model through your touch points, through your uh, transaction process and so forth. Yeah. So, and I think just real quickly to recap that again, for our newer listeners that, you know, are trying like, wait a second, hold on, let's back up a second. All so, right. Sorry. No, no, no. It was great. So the chargeback is 
you know, where that consumer, let's say I go in and I get my transmission fixed or probably a more common thing would be I go buy a flat screen television um, at a little local, you know, electronic store. And as a consumer, maybe I, you know, what we call friendly fraud, right? Like maybe I say, well, I bet they didn't keep their receipts. I bet they didn't keep good records. So I'm going to call my bank and say, hey, I saw this charge six months ago for $800 for this flat screen TV. I never bought that. That wasn't me. Right. And then that initiates that chargeback. And I think what you're saying is, you know, it's the, the merchants kind of guilty until proven innocent. Right. So exactly the money's taken from them. That's given to the, you know, the bank holds it for the consumer. And then the bank is kind of saying to the merchant, show us proof that they did buy this flat screen TV and we'll give you your money back. Um, right. But if they can't show that proof, which a lot of times these smaller merchants don't do a good job of keeping records, then obviously they, they, uh, they lose, they don't ever get that money back. Is that, is that a pretty good that's a, that's, a, that's a very high level good summary right there. And unfortunately, you've got as the merchant, you've got to know how that bank wants to see that information. Right. So right. there's this whole, uh, you know, black hole of information that you just don't know about as a merchant on, well, how do you put together that evidence that it's going to give you that best opportunity right. to right. win? So a lot of that really creates a, a pain point and a problem for merchants, for sure. And the friendly fraud, we've seen it has definitely been a big issue there. And you can't exactly go to the consumer's house and take a picture of the TV blaring in the living room. Because... <laughs> that, <laughs> no, social media fun. helps with some of that, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, you're not going to get uh, candid video of them using it uh, any right. other way, for sure. Right. And, and what you're saying also, Colin, just to just to drill down a little bit, is that it's not necessarily one particular industry or one particular uh, delivery system. It's 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 really a combination of factors that can uh, contribute to chargebacks being a problem for merchants. That's absolutely correct, Patty. It's it's really looking at what are those business policies, those touch points, how much control does that merchant have in the transaction process? And James, to your point, how much evidence or how much paperwork or paper trail or digital trail are they capturing along the way? Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. where you are not getting that digital paper trail or or whatever, you're you're in you're introducing a vulnerability there. Sure. You need to have evidence that in fact that transaction happened every way possible if you can right so, right yeah it's very much a, a vulnerability game that needs to be looked at um as layers in the business and and how they deliver that uh, good or service for sure uh tell me though are there external factors that have that have influenced like i've seen a lot of reports recently that particularly during the pandemic that chargebacks were increasing and I'm just wondering, you know, things like uh, like the pandemic, uh, increased data breaches, you know, that are, you know, uh, exposing people's records. Are those um, having an impact on um, chargeback volumes? Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the biggest impacts that I've seen is really about information available to the public on the chargeback process. Uh, we saw, especially with COVID and with the pandemic and uh -huh. with the shutdown of the travel and entertainment sector, well, a lot of flights, a lot of trips were booked, but a lot of those trip uh, and, and hospitality providers wanted to push out all of those reservations and wanted to extend the reservations and say, well, maybe summertime 2020, maybe wintertime 2020, we'll be able to you know, fulfill this, but they weren't 
being very proactive with the refund policies right off mm -hmm. of the bat. So mm -hmm. what happens now, all of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of influx of information around, well, you can use the chargeback policy and process as a way to get your money back if that business is not going to do it for you. Mm -hmm. So that really created, you know, this opportunity for people to easily search, well, you know, I'm at odds with this merchant. What are some ways that I can, you know, get out of this situation and get my money back um, right. without, you know, the headache of dealing with the merchant directly? So COVID absolutely created, you know, a just perfect storm of information and opportunity that really blossomed the chargeback uh, knowledge base to the public. And so now we're right. seeing it used more and more in a friendly fraud scenario. And that's really where we have a lot of the concerns uh, for merchants is just people leveraging the chargeback process for no good reason other than to get the money back. And right. data breaches are certainly another component but data, data breaches are really going to drive more of a true fraud element. And when we're looking at chargebacks, uh, true fraud is definitely something merchants face, uh, but it's also something that merchants have an ability to really protect themselves from with some fraud prevention tools, again, reducing some of those vulnerabilities uh, and openness to some of those uh, attacks. But with friendly fraud, the real driver in a lot of the chargebacks that we see as a provider and in, in the payment space. Those are the things that you really can't predict. We're not minority report. We can't predict what that human experience is going to be before right. they take that action. And so that's where it's really a concern in chargebacks, especially as a result of the pandemic. Right, right. Colin, are you able to put a financial framework around chargebacks? I mean, you know, obviously there's the cost of the of the goods, but I would imagine, I mean, you know, uh, there's there's time and le potential legal expenses, et cetera. Could you maybe for our audience put a put a uh, a figure around that? Absolutely. Um, very easily put, a chargeback is typically going to cost a merchant anywhere from one and a half to two times that transaction value. And that's a very simple way to that we see on average to calculate the cost of a chargeback because you've got that cost of goods sold, you've got that inventory, you've got you know the overhead and right. obviously your time to dispute that chargeback as well. So all those considerations really equate to a 1.5 to 2X, whatever that transaction is. So a $100 transaction is gonna cost that merchant $250 if that transaction results in a chargeback. That's, that's just the simple uh, math, mm -hmm. but when we look at it much deeper, we're looking at you know what is the, again, going back to COVID, going back to some of those external factors, what are the trends that we're seeing today? Mm -hmm. And that's what's really concerning to us is that merchants are facing a year over year increase in this chargeback um, vulnerability and chargeback revenue loss. And they're starting to see, you know, 30% increase, 15 to 30% increases in, in chargeback uh, loss year over year. And that's definitely looking at 2019, 2020 data. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's, again, we, we haven't seen it stop. 
You know, we're not right. out of this pandemic yet fully. So these are just continuing trends and these are things merchants need to be aware of. Yeah, that's that's actually quite uh, shocking, 30%, especially as you say, it's that's based on 2019, 2020. Right. I mean, it's probably even higher than that given the pandemic. Um, yeah, just organically, a merchant can probably expect somewhere from five to 10% uh, year over year as their mm -hmm. business grows. So that's mm -hmm. just a that's right. just an underlying benchmark to yeah. keep in mind. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it's super interesting as well. You know, Colin, one thing that always surprises me about this when we, when we talk about ISOs and agents is that they never talk about this when it's on the statement. It always kind of surprises mm -hmm. me because you know, ultimately, and we'll, we'll get to the question in a second about, you know, what you guys do, but the idea is, you know, when we think about a chargeback, let's say we have a business, it's a, you know, it's a bicycle shop, for instance, and, you know, their average sale is, let's say $200. And you go in and, you know, they're currently paying maybe $800 a month in processing fees. And you say, well, I could save you, you know, $50 a month is kind of the, the idea. Even if you go in with cash discounting and say, I can wipe it out, save you 800. Well, if they're getting 10 chargebacks a month, mm that's $2,000 that they're going to lose. Right. If you don't know how to handle them properly. Right. And so the idea is when you come in and say, well, you know, I see on your statement that last month you had, and you know, at my statement analysis company, we get, you know, thousands of statements a month. And I mean, it's shocking the percentage of statements that actually do have a, at least one or two chargebacks on there. And you can see it right on the statement, you know, yeah. it, it may not say the, the amount of the chargeback, but it'll say you had two or three or four chargebacks. And, you know, bringing those up and saying, how much did you lose on these? You know, that should be a huge red flag and then being able to look at that. So I guess within the context of that, you know, talk a little bit about this. I mean, why, you know, why should ISOs and agents be interested in this topic in your opinion? You know, why should they be looking to sell this? Is this like, you know, we're going to make money off of this? Is it more relationship play? Like, how do you see it playing out with your ISO uh, partners? Yeah, so for ISOs, you know, it's definitely a opportunity to really service the client when you are doing that initial vetting, when you are looking at those statements for the first time, you're recognizing right there that they obviously have some underlying vulnerabilities to chargebacks. It's very mm -hmm. simple. It's there on paper, like you said, James. And what chargebacks allow the ISO to do is really help that merchant prolong the life of their merchant account, prolong the life of their business, grow their business. And so chargebacks as a solution really is a win-win scenario for both the merchant and the ISO because it's going to allow lifetime value of that merchant account. Uh, it's going to in increase that lifetime value. Yeah, there are some revenue components there, but that's not why ISOs look to chargeback solutions. Right. Their, their primary core business is payments processing. They're looking at right. chargebacks as a complementary solution that's going to address the headaches and pain points that their merchants have expressed or that they've identified in their merchant base. And so it's really a way for ISOs to grow that concierge and consultative approach that many of, many of them are taking now because that's really setting them apart. That's what we see with the biggest ISOs is that they are very much the trusted payments partner for their merchants. And when right. their merchants have a question, they come strictly strictly to that uh, ISO. Now, if that ISO can also guide them or help them with a chargeback solution or fraud solution, all of those components, now that you know relationship is much more sticky 
And that ISO has, you know, a customer for life, whether or not somebody else is going to compete at, you know, percentage points. I mean, James, you and I were at SEAA. We look at, you know, there were 600 people in a room in Florida at an event that were all competing with one another practically. So how does an ISO create a, a defining you know, divider, separator from themselves and their merchants compared to all those other ISOs that were in the room. It's really building that trust, having that end-to-end solution that they need to think about how they can do that for their merchants. And and as a result, it's going to give them a much, you know, larger piece of the pie, keep that piece of the pie for longer. uh, And and that's what really makes the, the biggest ISOs the best. Yeah. So, so that kind of dovetails with the question that I have, um, which is, you know, it, uh, there's chargeback gurus is not the only company out there with a chargeback solution. Um, there are several companies out there. And I'm, I wanted to get a sense for how you work with ISOs and agents. And then maybe we can segue into what should an ISO look for in a chargeback solution provider? Yeah, so, you know, from Chargeback Guru's perspective, and you're right, Patty, we're not the only Chargeback solution out there, but what's important is that ISOs need to identify the best Chargeback solution for their merchants, for their particular scenario. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that involves, you know, finding a partner that really matches well with their, uh, you know, solution um, service model. And Mm -hmm. again, like I said, a lot of ISOs like to be hands-on, like to be consultative, like to be a trusted partner to their merchants. So it's important to find a chargeback partner that is also a trusted partner for your merchants so that there's not going to be that conflict of, let me introduce you to a chargeback solution. They're going to sell you on something and I'm going to you know, wipe my hands from it. ISOs that really want to be hands-on want to want a chargeback partner that's going to step in, act as a consultant, act as that ace up their sleeve with regards to chargeback, that subject matter expert that's really going to, you know, support their business. And, and I think, you know, that's certainly something that we focus on in, in our partner program is really guiding and, and being a, a resource to support the ISO channel and ultimately provide what is, and, and, and this is just my personal opinion. Yes, I am an employee, but you know, I've compared ourselves and I hear what our merchants say, but we are providing those merchants with dedicated guidance, dedicated direction to help their business. And that's what matters at the end of the day. That's how you succeed in business is to really take that well-being at heart and, and you know, do the best you possibly can. So Yeah, I think it's important from an ISO that they absolutely need to find the best solution because if it's all based on commission, if it's all based on how much revenue I'm going to get, that merchant is going to come and go very quickly. There's not any, you know, real uh, trust or relationship building that's taking place there. Um, And it actually may, you know, lose you in the end much more so than a lesser commission that, you know, lasts for longer. So. So, so does Chargeback Guru then work directly with the merchant through the ISO? Is there a combination of, of working arrangements? 
absolutely a combination there's there's the referrals just to make it simple you know if that's there very little resource requests very little you know time and effort but like i said you've got that subject matter expert in your pocket when it needs to come out let's make an introduction let's get on a call let's let's you know get your pain points uh, and objectives, you know, overcome with a chargeback provider. Mm -hmm. Let's bring in chargeback gurus. Then you also have, of course, the white label. You know, I want to be the only person to touch my merchants right. on the ISO. I don't want anybody else to talk to them. I want everything to go through me. That's also absolutely fine. There's a there are about four or five different uh, channels, programs, and blends that can work with every single scenario that we've encountered so far. And trust me, if there is a scenario that we haven't, well, we'll be happy to uh, consider it and find the best solution to match it. But there's absolutely a, a method to work with ISOs in every capacity and partners in every capacity, not just ISOs, but you know, we've got fraud tools and we've got other providers that are working hand in hand with chargeback gurus. So there's going to be that extension or kickoff point that chargeback gurus is even providing to the ISO channel as well. Just as their merchants look to them as a trusted mm -hmm. payment source, those ISOs and part our partners can look to us as a trusted source as well. And we can guide them uh, through some of the you know maze of fraud tools, uh, friendly fraud, true fraud, uh, solutions as well. So that's how our partner program is really working. It, it, you know, we can make it fit. Um, and we want to also be that trusted provider to the uh, partners. If you were to, you know, stand up and give a, a quick overview, uh, you know, the, the two minute uh, elevator pitch, so to All speak. Right. Uh, how does chargeback gurus differentiate itself from other providers in this field? Yeah, so chargeback gurus is definitely driven to help merchants uncover the root causes of their chargebacks. I think that's something that's very unique. Okay. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of data that supports that, and it really helps merchants understand, you know, what are their chargeback uh, formulas, mm -hmm. how many deals to chargebacks, their disputes, that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. um, but what we're, we're really doing uh, that I think is unique is that we are a fully managed solution provider. Um, of course, we have a self-managed component if that's what, you know, a merchant desires. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, you know, white glove, very hands-on, very dedicated to service. That's mm -hmm. uh, first and And then there is always a reporting component that comes with that. So as we are doing our work, as we are enrolling in a solution or as we're maybe helping them with a prevention of chargebacks or the other side of the uh, chargeback solution is the recovery of chargebacks once right. they've happened, right? The dispute. Right. We're helping those merchants understand within their business, within their business policies, within their touch points on their merchants or on their customers, you know, what touch points, what policies are driving chargebacks? Because every chargeback tells a story, much like a, a bad Yelp review if you were to think of it that way. Okay. As you start to address what is driving chargebacks, maybe it's a sales rep over promising, maybe it's a marketing campaign that's still buy one, get one free, but you char get charged double. Uh, maybe it's a customer service uh, communication line that's not being answered in time. 
we're going to help those merchants uncover that knowledge. We're going to help them see the reporting and, and how they should really address low-hanging fruit in their own business, mm-hmm. addressing some of those pieces, because that's going to tell us a story. You're going to address it. So as you address those things, you're going to reduce that chargeback vulnerability. Maybe it's improved communication, training, whatever. Now you've got improvements to the overall customer experience as a result mm-hmm. because you have addressed what's really driving chargeback. So now your customer experience improves, your lifetime value improves, all of the acquisition costs, KPIs improve. So all of those metrics that merchants are really hyper-focused on those also see lift while the chargebacks, the loss, and the vulnerabilities see a decline. That's what Chargeback Gurus is about. That's what we're trying to get to. We're really trying to help merchants understand, um, you know, the full scale of their chargeback solution at a root cause base. You know, it's interesting. I think we spoke with Suresh maybe a year or two ago, right, yeah. James? Yeah, but a year, yeah, year and a half. Yeah. Ago. And he brought up an example that, that came into my head when you were talking just now, and it was about, you know, some client that was having all these chargebacks and it really was a fulfillment issue. Yep. Right. You know, and they went right. in and they said, Hey, this is where you're messing up. And if you can fix this and, you know, that really surprised me because, you know, when I hear a lot about chargebacks, I think in terms of friendly fraud, but a lot of times it really is just right. miscommunication. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You've got two sides, you know, your high risk merchant, uh, maybe facing a lot of friendly fraud, your low risk merchant, you know, your enterprise merchant may just be facing some internal operation, um, you know, uh, deficiencies that really mm-hmm. need to be improved. We had, I remember week one, when I got here, I went into a meeting just as a training session. I went into a, an insurance company that was uh, selling uh, Medicaid and Medicare policy, excuse me, Medicare policy, part B plans. And they had a policy that said, if one of our partners sells that policy, well, then we will allow that partner the first right to win it back if it ever wants to cancel, right? Okay. So that partner was never, that they weren't the merchant of record, the insurance provider was that, that had the partner. So any chargebacks were on the insurance company, not the partner. And the partner just kept getting commission checks because that account never got canceled. They, so there was no incentive for them to cancel the policy or really do what was right because there was just, you know, no, no penalty for it. Mm-hmm. Well, as we looked at our reporting, and this was the first real reporting session that we had with this client, we saw that the, their chargeback vulnerabilities were really tied to their affiliate partner sales network. Uh-huh. They communicated to us that they had this policy and overnight they reduce their chargeback loss by $80,000 a month simply by putting in a a very easy operational difference to say, we're going to be the ones to manage the, you know, win back rate, not you close the deal. Thank you. But we're going to, we're going to actually keep these clients going and we're going to save a fortune in in revenue loss. So real easy uh, examples. And and there are just so many of them that we can give uh, of success stories like that. That's awesome. Yeah, this yeah, is this is really, really is. some great stuff, uh, Colin. Uh, I'm sure there are folks out there that are going to want to, you know, know some, find out some more about chargeback gurus. Where where would you send them? 
So I'd send them uh, obviously to our website, chargebackgurus.com. Uh, email me and, and the rest of the team here, partners at chargebackgurus.com. Um, and like I said, we'll also be at a lot of shows now that those are starting up again. So it's great. So please look for us there. MWAA uh, will be the next big one for us uh, to attend. And that's my birthday weekend. So just, uh, hey, actually, just, uh, just throwing that nice. out there. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy yeah. birthday. It comes right after my birthday weekend, so we can okay. celebrate together. There you go. Well, and, and go. my colleague who's traveling with us, it's also gonna be uh their birthday weekend. So Patty, you wow. know, hey, we have a party we have a party in Chicago, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, thanks so much for jumping on with us today. Great Thank information. I know our uh, our audience always enjoys it's like this is like the only podcast out there where there's all these listeners that are like, we're taking these really kind of boring technically, you know, topics, and it's like this stuff really matters. And I think hopefully yeah. our audience is going to take a lot of this information, reach out to you guys and work with you, but even at a higher level, just realize the importance of chargebacks as it relates to their merchant you know, relationship. So thank you very much for sharing the info. Thank you as well. Yeah. It's a big, important topic that I hear about all the time for merchants. So anything that can uh, help out the audience here and, and Patty and James, thank you guys very much for including chargeback gurus and myself. So appreciate it's been it. Been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Hey everybody, Patty and I want to give a big shout out to, to Valor Paytech, which is the official sponsor of the Merchant Sales Podcast and the sponsor of this episode. You know, if you're selling standalone terminals, especially cash discounting, you need a terminal provider that's built around cash discounting where the numbers make sense, everything adds up, and it's just done right. And I don't know about you, Patty, but I'm I'm hearing a lot of things from agents of other terminals that are just simply not doing what they not want. Not doing the trick. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and the thing about Valor is that these are processor agnostic. So, right. you know, it doesn't matter. You can just sell the terminal, get get them up on cash discounting, right. and it doesn't matter who they're processing through. It's going to be so much of an easier sale than going in there and trying to sell them a specific terminal that's tied to a specific processor. Absolutely. So if you haven't done so already, head over to ccsalespro.com slash valor v-a-l-o-r ccsalespro.com slash v-a-l-o-r and check it out this is questions from the field brought to you by ccsalespro.com the leader in merchant sales training and technology if you're an individual merchant sales professional visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass if you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, I just, uh, right before we recorded this episode, had a great conversation with one of our six-week Jumpstart participants and doing some one-on-one -on -one coaching, and she is trying to close uh, quite a few large deals. Uh -huh. and. You know, she's not having trouble getting the decision maker. She's not having trouble getting them interested. She's not even having trouble really getting them to say, yes, we are interested in moving forward. But then she just is having a lot of trouble just getting it done. You know what I mean? Like, how mm -hmm. do I just get this deal? I can't get the paperwork signed. I can't get it installed. I just can't get it over the finish line. It just seems like it keeps taking forever. And so I talked to her about the importance of storytelling um, in sales. And so mm. when you're when you're selling, you have to tell a compelling story about why things should move forward. So I gave, I'll give you an example. In her case, this, this particular merchant is a large company. She was trying to sell them cash discounting. They're currently doing Interchange Plus. 
And they have equipment now. It's an old FD-150 terminals that they use. And they want to switch to the new like tablets. Uh, mm-hmm. So she's selling, I think it's Swipe Simple. Um, and so she's offering like a Swipe Simple tablet with a you know dongle on it that you can use um, for EMV or, or Swipe. And she can do cash discount or traditional processing. I said, look, I said, why don't you go in there and say, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, the, you know, uh, the supply chain, especially for electronics is a disaster right now. Right. But before I came to this meeting today, I did confirm with my team that we do have enough hardware available for you right now um, that we can move forward. So uh-huh. before I leave today, the only thing I want to do is I do want to make sure we get this equipment order in. Now, if you'd rather just go with a, you know traditional processing like you have now, if you're more comfortable with that for right now, that's fine. We can always switch to the cash discount down the road. But the most important thing is we need to get that equipment order in today. Um, and so let's get this paperwork filled out. But did you want to go with traditional or do you want to go ahead and give the cash discounting a shot? You know, that's a compelling story. That's mm-hmm. going to get that merchant to say, oh, wow, I need to move forward, right? So, you know, maybe it's equipment supply. Maybe it's a manufactured, you know, discount. I was telling her a story about, you know, my first sales job. I was selling lawn care for True Green. Uh, I was like 19 years old. And they had twice a year, they had this thing they called Cellathon. So Cellathon was this one day, it was a Saturday. Everybody came into the office and, at the, you know, right at the beginning of the day, they would give us all this sheet that said, here's the prices for today, the special prices for today. Uh-huh. It was usually a 30, 35% discount on lawn care services for the first year. Well, you know, we would all year be selling people and they would want a discount and we would say, I'm sorry, we don't discount. You know, if we couldn't sell them, we'd say, now we do have one day a year that we discount. It's sell-a-thon. Can I call you back on that day and, you know, try to sell you? And, you know, we would make a lot of sales that day, obviously. Um, but you know, ultimately, you know, it's not that they couldn't give a discount on a different day. That's a story. They're telling right. a story. They're, they're creating sure. a narrative. And right. when I started my own company, I very quickly realized, I was like, man, you know, I'm my own company now. I have to create my own narrative. Right. And so I did. And so every month, even on a weekly basis or a per client basis, I would figure out what is my company's pricing policy relative to this situation. And mm-hmm. I would create a compelling story. I'd go in and say, hey, um, I've got great news. You know, this month um, I'm offering this. And so this special offer ends July 1st. You know, sometimes I would bring um, one of my favorite ones is I would bring either 100 or uh, 100 or even $500. Um, it was like a marketing piece, like a third piece, uh, you know, right. one third of a piece of paper. And it mm-hmm. would look like a $100 bill. Right. Um, and I brought in on one side, it was a hundred dollar bill on the other side, it was kind of my marketing piece. And I would hand it to him and say, um, you know, any new clients that sign up, um, as soon as we get the paperwork done, submitted and approved, um, I will give you a $100 visa gift card just as a thank you for being a new client of mine. And that's something I'm doing through July 1st, you know, or whatever it is. Um, you know, could be free equipment. It could be any number of things, but if you think you're going to go in and close, especially a larger deal, and you're not going to create that narrative, it's going to take you forever. You yeah. know, it's your job as the salesperson to infuse the urgency into that situation by sharing a compelling narrative, a compelling story that gets your point across that, hey, we if we're going to move forward, we need to do it now. And then the final tip I gave her was I said, you know, you need to shift your mindset. And so the mindset of the salesperson, you know, a lot of people talk about the patient salesperson. Um, I agree, but disagree with that. So yes, good salespeople are patient, meaning they have a long-term view of their success. Sure. So they understand it takes a while. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. but with individual accounts, um, I like not very patient. So, so the idea there is either you're part of my sales pipeline or you're not. So I'll give you a really good example. Um, we deal with large clients all the time with our ISO AMP business, which is our mm-hmm. statement analysis company. We have at any given time, I probably have six or seven, you know, well-known brands that have, you know, more than 200 salespeople that are evaluating our statement analysis service, right? And we sign up one or two of them a month. These are very long sales cycles. Well, what I do is very simple on that side of the business. Um, I give it to them for free initially uh-huh. um, and say, hey, just use it, you know, try it out, take three or four year reps, go in there, use it, right? And then we wait until we have a good rationale, a good story, a good, you know, narrative of some kind to move forward with that deal. Maybe it's them reaching out, whatever it is. But to me, then once they reach out and then it's like, okay, you're, you're ready to talk seriously about doing this. Let's do it. Right. Let's talk and let's do it. Right. right. You've had a chance to, to use it. You right. know how good it is. So yeah. let's move. Let's go. Right. And if you don't want to go right now, I'm very patient. Meaning if you would like me to ignore you, I will ignore you for a while because I have other people I'm trying to sell. Right. 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 But if you mean patient as in I'm going to waste my time with lots and lots and lots of endless meetings to no purpose. No, I'm not patient at all. If you want to try it out and you want me to ignore you for a while, I'm more than happy to do that. But if we're going to be part of a sales process, let's go because I'm busy and I have other things to do. Right. Right. So salespeople need to get themselves in that same mindset when you're talking to a merchant of, you know, again, going back to the narrative, putting these all together, you could say, you know, uh, look, you know, Susan, um, the, the truth is, I'm just being honest with you, there is a big supply chain issue right now, um, you know, especially when it comes to electronics. Look it up. You'll see, you know, this is across right. the board, you know, semiconductors. I mean, this is a big issue in a lot of industries. A lot of industries, sure. You know, right now, our company, you know, if this is your case, you could say right now, our company does have a good supply of hardware for the next 30 days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's happening is we have a lot of businesses that are looking to us right now because mm-hmm. they need to upgrade hardware and we have it. How long right. we're going to have it, I don't know. But what I want to find out from you is, is this something you're seriously considering now that you'd like to move forward with? Or do you want me to not worry about this now and we can check back later on down the road when we have a supply of equipment again? Right. 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 So the idea is I'll be patient. I'm fine to talk with you in you know three, six months. I don't care. I have a lot of other people I'm selling. But if you want to move forward, let's go because I have the equipment right now. So we're giving that narrative. So again, you know, there's so many variations of that. It depends so much on the size of the merchant, the type of the merchant, the sales process, the decision maker. But ultimately, as a salesperson, one of your most important jobs is crafting a compelling story and narrative for that specific account that's going to resonate with them and it's going to get them to take action and feel that there's some urgency to it. So it's more like, yes, so you're selling by telling. Yes. But it's by telling something that's of import. Yeah, you're really you've got to you've got to get their mindset wrapped around what is the logic for them. Why should right. they move forward now versus waiting until later? Yeah. If you haven't given them a compelling reason, you know, understand the opportunity cost here. These are busy people. They have, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, well, I don't know what their problem is. This big company, I could save them a thousand dollars a month. Do you not understand? Like, I don't think our industry really gets it. Like a thousand dollars a month for a big company. Okay. For my company personally, a thousand dollars a month to me is—I mean, I wouldn't—I don't want to say meaningless because it's—it's money is money. But I mean, I have employees, lots of employees that I pay six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month to. So you're going to save me one sixth of one of my many employees. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, I would love to, 
But ultimately, I have a lot of other things going on. I have a lot of opportunities I'm, I'm pursuing. I have a lot of things to do with my time. And so, you know, the question is, in the time it would take me to save $1,000 a month with this vendor, could I have instead focused on making $5,000 a month in additional revenue mm-hmm. on the other side of my business? And so that's how these business owners are thinking. And so when you go in there and you're like, well, I'm just going to let the savings do the work. I'm going to, I'm saving you $1,000 a month. They'll, they'll make a decision. No, they won't. No. You have to give them a compelling narrative. Now, if somebody came to me and said, I can save you $1,000 a month right now, but if you wait 30 days, you're not going to be able to save that $1,000 a month. Well, right. okay, if I believe you, you've definitely got my attention now. If I right. realize I'm not going to be able to take advantage of this $1,000 opportunity again, okay, all right, fine. But if you're just saying, hey, whenever you want, you can save $1,000 a month, eh, let's talk next month. I'm busy. Right. Right. So I think it would be helpful for agents in our industry to kind of wrap their mind around that mindset and that you know understanding and then weave a narrative that's going to get people like me off the fence and making decisions, even though we are busy and even though there's a lot of other opportunities on our plate. Yeah, yeah. Good insights, James. Thanks. Study. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, folks, here's a stat that I think might have some people scratching their heads. Fewer than half of fuel, get, fuel stations with pay at pump were EMV compliant as of mid-April when the deadline for bringing those pumps into compliance uh, took effect. Uh, ACI Worldwide uh, surveyed 45,000 gas stations nationwide, including those owned by major oil companies, grocers, and convenience stores, and found that just 48%, and this was, they did this in like mid-April, so like days before the deadline took effect. Yeah, yeah. And they found just 48% were ready for EMV compliance deadline um, with respect to these automated fuel dispensers. Wow. And uh, drilling down, they found that 26% have upgraded better than three quarters of their AFDs. 22% have upgraded less than a half. And 50% of those that are not fully compliant aren't sure when they will be. Wow. Now, you know, I got to tell a little, a little aside story here. Uh, I was, you know, as, as we've discussed in the past, I live out in the middle of nowhere and there's this little country store, maybe five miles from here with a couple gas pumps. Yeah. And so I was over there the other day and I noticed that they're digging up all the pumps. Hmm. So I said, Oh, you guys are going with EM, you're putting EMV compliant pumps in. And he's like, what? I'm like, the new security procedure for card payments. You're putting those new pumps in, right? He's like, oh no, we're just putting new tanks in. Wow. Wow. And I thought, man, if I was a if I was selling fuel stations, yeah. <laughs> those are yeah. the kind of places I'd be going to right now. Because you know yeah. they're spending a fortune putting new tanks in, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And might as well go ahead and fix the pumps while they're at it. Right? It's you know? like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously, you know, the Pandemic had a had an impact on lack of preparedness, you know, the financial strain. Sure. But the you know the fact remains, like this gas little gas station in Wolfsville, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, of gas stations 
that are now prime targets for fraudsters. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, I, I almost, it's interesting, actually. I would even push back a little bit on the assumption that the pandemic made it worse. I mean, we think about it, actually, gas stations are one of the only business types that remained that normal actually operation. remained open, right? And yes. they got paycheck protection program money and they had EI, you know, like EIDL uh, loans and all yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, stuff. Well, you know, really, they're probably in a better cash position than they've been in years. And right. I really believe that it's primarily a lack of understanding on their part to understand I, number one, what happens when they're not compliant. Right. Number two, how inexpensive it is to actually fix it. Yeah, because these guys are going to be financially on the hook. I mean, there was no extension this year, despite some people wanting it. And and I think these small merchants are going to be really hurt. Like I said, I actually found myself trying to explain to this guy what EMV was and why his pump should really do that, you know. Yeah. And he just kind of blew me off and I was like, okay, you know, yeah. but, uh, well, he'll be, he'll be wanting to talk to you again in a couple of years when, maybe. Year when he sees, yeah, so, when he see, sees that stuff coming back, maybe it'd be beneficial for our audience uh, to actually explain, um, you know, what does happen. Like, it was funny. I, you mentioned this just yesterday. I was watching a show on HBO max about fraud. They had a thing about scams and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting because they were talking about credit cards. They were interviewing scammers that had actually you know that do this that do this and they you know they were showing like literally these machines where they they can like in the back of a car they have a machine that's printing credit cards yeah so they go on the dark web they get your credit card number they print a card well if you're a gas station and somebody goes in and they they swipe that card and they fill up their gas tank and then they fill up another one and they go bump bop bop around and, and they do this well if your pump was EMV compliant, that fraud would not have been possible because right. it would have said, this is a chip card and mm-hmm. you need to ha- it needs to have a chip, but it didn't. But your pump didn't recognize that because it doesn't allow those chip cards. Right. So however much gas they bought in the past, like current, you know, before this deadline, that fraud that was covered by the card brands of the bank. Right. Um, but by, because, the issuing bank, right? The issuing bank, right. right. But now because that fraud is totally the merchant's fault, and it could have been avoided with EMV as of the deadline. Now they're just going to put that right back on the gas station and say, "Hey, you had a thousand dollars in fraud last month. That's your problem." Yeah, yeah. And you know, and and the thing is, is I mean, I go online every once in a while. In fact, just prepping for this insider's report, I just did a quick scan. You know, uh, gas pump scammer uh, skimmers. Yes. You know, and they're, I mean. You know, North Dakota, New York, Maine, Florida, California, yeah. there's all these rings they keep busting. And yep. you know, if they're busting these rings, there's plenty that they're not busting. Right. What What is a skimmer for those that maybe don't okay, know? Okay, so what it is, it's a, it's a little device that can be put inside the, the uh, terminal um, that literally captures the uh, card number. And then transmits it to, you know, usually there's a transmitter they they keep nearby that collects all these card numbers. Right. So when I go into my gas, if I was to go to that gas station right. and run the card through, if there was a skimmer on there, it would capture all the magstripe information that they need to create a bogus account. Yep. And or sell that number or sell that card on the dark web. Right. Um. And, you know, the thing that surprises me, I mean, these things are so tiny. I mean, I actually, you know, have, I got hit by a ATM skimmer one time and, um, mm. and it was interesting because I actually took, went to my bank and they were like, oh yeah, uh, 
We found that skimmer in this ATM and the camera was across the street. Cause I said, how'd they get my pin number? They had a camera across the street that could photograph you keying in your, your pin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so then now, they timestamp that along with the skimmer. Yeah. And then wow. they know. Yeah. That's crazy. And, and it's crazy. Um, and, uh, you know, so for ATMs, I mean, that's really difficult because there they're getting your pin and your, and your account information. Right. You and know, there's no chargebacks on pin debits. So. No. Right. And so then if you're doing, um, you know, at the gas station, you're using your debit card. I mean, I, I tell all my friends, don't use your debit card. <laughs> don't use your, your DDA debit card at a gas station right. if you're going to swipe because yeah. that you might right. as well just say goodbye to your, to your money. Yeah. Um, it, it, it amazes me how many news articles in local newspapers and television stations that I see about skimmers yeah. every week. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to also throw out a, a couple of additional data points that came out of the ACI survey mm -hmm. that I referenced in the beginning, which I thought was very interesting. 91% of fuel stations um, plan to implement contactless. And 78% are considering mobile. Wow. And yet they don't even really know what EMV is right now. You know, isn't that right? interesting? Isn't that like, interesting? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought that those data points yeah. coupled with their lack of understanding of EMV yeah. really. Well, maybe, you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, maybe the one will drive the other, you know, maybe the, maybe the fuel stations as they have more of an interest in mobile payments and contactless, and they're going to realize they have to upgrade their pump for that. Right. Maybe they'll be like, oh, Maybe then, we'll also, okay. Yeah. I guess we'll do that yeah. chip thing. Yeah. I guess there's a good data point for those on our, in our audience that are trying to sell gas stations that, you know, if your solution, if you're using like a, um, you know, is it the IDT with their, uh, right. One that we, we interviewed and sound payments and a few others. So maybe if you're selling gas stations, um, you know, talking to them about contactless, maybe that's like a better lead in even in the EMB, even though the EMB deadline is more urgent. Right. You know, it sounds like maybe they're more interested in learning about how to accept contactless and mobile payments. You know, and, and I think, you know, we've seen so much um, emphasis on contactless over the past year. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just been, you know, I was yeah. thinking about this the other day, James, and I don't want to meander too far off the topic, but you know, I've been covering payments for almost 40 years now yeah. and Everything has always been so slow. I remember when they went from the knuckle buses, busters to, you know, yes. online off. I mean, God, you would think that was never going to end, you know, the migration. Yes. yes. And to see contactless in the last couple of years just eclipse any other adoption yeah. in the payment space. It's just blown my mind. Uh, yeah. And especially, you know, as, as we both know, I'm older. I'm a baby boomer. I, I love contactless. I mean, I have one contactless card now and that's all I use, you know, waiting yeah. for the others to, to issue. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It has been, it has taken off. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. I feel like obviously COVID has really, you know, advanced it in a crazy way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's taken off. I mean, it, you know, I think it's, I was just having actually a debate on LinkedIn right before this with a, uh, uh, you know, somebody on my profile was posting about, I was actually posting about that surcharge, mm -hmm. uh, you know, thing that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks uh, in Colorado. And, you know, I always get the person who's not the industry person They're you know, they're a right, right. entrepreneur coach or whatever. Right. And he's posting in there and saying, you know, your whole industry is just totally predicated on this crazy idea because the cost of moving money is zero. 
And so eventually, you know, merchants know it, consumers know it, you know, whatever. And, you know, and it's like, it's just so dumb, you know, and, and you just, it, it's so frustrating that people just don't, you know, they don't get it. And I said, yeah, well, I guess that's why all major merchants and consumers today are using Bitcoin. Yeah. No, they're not. <laughs> like, you know, it's like things take time. There's an right. evolution and, and, you know, the, you know, the adoption, it's like, you look at contactless and it's like, wow, that's just taken off like a rocket ship relative to other things. Mm-hmm. It's not 50% though. No. It's, you know what I mean? What is it? 15% or something. I mean, it's. It's a know, little closer to 20 these days, but still, yeah. yeah. But, but you know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like that. Oh, yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, it's getting in three years, getting to 15% is like an amazing rate of change. Right. Um, and so people are, well, you know, Bitcoin acceptance is, you know, it's like, well, yeah, maybe in 10 years, that'll be at 15, 20%. Like it takes a long time for these things to happen in the payment space. It's a very complicated ecosystem. And it's a very complicated ecosystem. And it is not a zero cost. You know, no, it's process. not a zero cost at all. So, I, you know, what I put on there, I said, you know, everything is ultimately zero cost, but you've got to have technology and services in order to enable the transaction of anything, whether it's payments or goods or anything else. You, know, you have to be able to facilitate the transaction. So, um, but yeah, I think it's super interesting and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how these trends kind of play out moving forward. Yeah. Good stuff, Patty. Thanks, James. This episode of the Merchant Sales Podcast was brought to you by Valor Paytech, the technology company that is revolutionizing cash discounting and surcharging with innovative features like dual mid support, waive the fee options, and even adding non-cash adjustment charges to tips. Now, all of this is made possible by a variety of technology devices and solutions such as gateways, tabletop point of sale devices, and features like SMS text messaging and e-invoicing, all with cash discounting in mind. Valor Paytech, bold ideas, smart execution. Make sure you head over to ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R, ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R. Schedule your free demo today and watch videos and learn more about this amazing technology solution. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.